My Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And in honor of the fact that I am returning to normal content after last week's somewhat more off, you know, topic, sort of off topic and slightly controversial, you know, stuff that we talked about, uh, I am wearing my Taters t-shirt because it's just back to good, solid, hearty food. At any rate, the, uh, point of this video is to discuss something which, oddly enough, does tie into the same kind of stuff that I was talking about in my previous video, which is about changes that told, that Peter Jackson made that made no sense. It's not that this change didn't make any sense, it's that this particular change is one that a lot of people thought actually worked really well based on, you know, the fact that it's just, it's easier for viewers to comprehend uh, and that change particularly is Faramir falling prey to the temptation of the ring. And the change is not in and of itself something that doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't actually create any internal contradictions or anything like that. But it does detract a lot from what Tolkien was really trying to do with the ring. Because the ring is not some omnipotent corrupting force as it seems to be portrayed in Jackson, nor are men all, you know, so easily seduced by the ring. And Jackson's movie itself doesn't really emphasize the idea that all men are just going to be instantly corrupted by the ring because Aragorn isn't. I mean, you know, that's an easy example, right? And so the problem with the change with Faramir is it never really sat right with me because of, A, we already know that not all men are going to be like that, and B, the ring is not something that just instantly corrupts people, period, because we also have people like Frodo and Sam and Gandalf, and there's several people in the Fellowship that are in close proximity to the ring for a long time and never get that level of corruption out of it. But the point of my video here is not so much to talk about why that change is bad, but to explore what Tolkien really was trying to do with the ring. And this was explored in some detail by Tom Shippey, and I think it was the author of the Century book. Um, it might have been The Road to Middle-Earth, but it might have even been both. He covers a lot of the same material in both. But at any rate, Tom Shippey talks about how the ring and its evil, its malevolent influence, is both, and I forget the exact two terms he used, one I'm pretty sure was Manichaean, uh, but the other, I don't remember the, the term he used, because it's been a while since I read it, but the idea of Manichaeanism is that, or Manichaeism, I think is actually the correct term, is the idea that good and evil are these opposing independent forces in the world, and like whatever evil happens is because of this ultimate evil who's out there influencing things for evil, whereas good things that happen are because of this ultimate good influence that makes things good. Whereas the other position would be that within all of us, there is a tendency to do something evil. And this, of course, is very much consonant with the Judeo-Christian idea of there being a fall, which leads to humanity being kind of a broken species that will end up doing bad things no matter what you do with them. Human nature is broken in that worldview. And what Tom Shippey shows is that if you look at the effect of the ring, it's actually got elements of both. There is both a Manichaean element 
to the way the ring works, but there's also an element that fits this other view. And the way he shows that is partially through Faramir, because Faramir is, in the book, a really good example of somebody who does not have that inner tendency to be corrupted in the first place. And that's what makes Faramir such an interesting character in the book, and why the fact that they changed him to basically be Boromir who redeems himself before he gets himself killed, you know, it's just like he kind of cheapened his role a little bit. But the the real key here is the ring in, in Shippy's explanation does two things. It does do the thing that Manichaeanism or Manichaeism would say it does, which is it's just this outward evil force that imposes itself on a person and makes them do evil things. But it also uses the evil inherent in a person and magnifies it and uses that to maximum effect to get them to do evil on their own anyway. And the example par excellence of this, of course, is Gollum. Gollum is, even before he is Gollum, Smeagol is a not exactly solid, shining example of morality, it doesn't seem. He, you know, he's already got things about him based on what little Gandalf can figure out about his history that seems to imply he's already got some problems, right? And so when the ring comes into his path, it doesn't have to work very hard on him to get him to immediately go to committing murder, right? And you cannot explain this away as Smeagol was perfectly fine and then the ring just broke him instantly because if that was the way the ring worked with everybody... Frodo would have done that. Gandalf would have done that. Aragorn would have done that. Every single person who comes into contact with the ring would constantly be fighting over it, warring over it, and civilization would be dust. <laughs> they just It wouldn't last, right? Bilbo would have murdered Gollum in a heartbeat rather than having pity and sparing his life. This You cannot explain Gollum that way. A lot of people have tried to kind of go that route, but you cannot make that work with the way the story is written, right? Just just doesn't work. But on the other hand, the ring is itself a corrupting force. Even somebody like Frodo, who has very little in the way of an innate desire to do evil or anything like this, is corrupted by the ring so much that by the time he's in Mordor and rescued by Sam, his need for the ring is so great that he sees in his mind's eye Sam as an orc, and is about to kill him over it. Like, that's the kind of influence the ring has. It's like, even if you don't have an inherent tendency to evil, it's going to just corrupt your mind anyway. Now, the real extreme version of this, and this is why this is, you know, this is another one of those things where I think it's it makes perfect sense that Peter Jackson made this change, leaving out Tom Bombadil. But it does sacrifice something interesting about the story because Tom Bombadil is literally the example of a person who cares so little about any of it that he just doesn't care about the ring. And no matter how long he possessed it, it probably wouldn't matter. This is the difference between Tom Bombadil and Frodo. Frodo, who seemingly has barely looked at the ring in, you know, 17 years, when Gandalf comes back to him, and tells him what it is, and says, 
go ahead, try to throw it in the fire and destroy it right now. Frodo pulls it out and immediately starts admiring how beautiful it is. And the next thing you know, he's found that he's put it back in his pocket without even realizing it. Whereas Bombadil treats it like a plaything, and Gandalf will later say in the Council of Elrond, and I have no reason to doubt him, that if you gave it to him and the entire world begged him to take it, to do something, you know, to keep it safe, he'd probably still just chuck it by the wayside because he just doesn't care. So Bombadil is the type of person who the ring cannot gain a hold over. Bombadil is a unique case. Nobody else in Middle Earth is going to be like that, okay? Uh, certainly no incarnate mortal being, or even immortal beings like elves. They're, they're not capable of handling that for, you know, ages without it corrupting their minds. But this is what makes Faramir so interesting, right? This is why Faramir is such a great example for us as the readers of the story. Faramir is that person who his, his level of virtue is so high that whenever he comes across the ring, he's like, I don't want to even know anything more about it. I wouldn't pick it up by the wayside if I found it. I said that, and I take it as a vow, and I mean it. So I'm not going to do anything with it. And with those words, now does that mean that you know Faramir is going to be perfectly impervious to the ring? Of course not. I just got through saying nobody is, other than Bombadil. But it does mean that if he saw it by the wayside... I do believe that Faramir would literally pass it by. He would say, nope, I'm not picking it up. I'm not doing anything with it. And this is why when he tells Denethor later, you know, I wouldn't use the ring, not if Minas Tirith were crumbling and I alone could save her. He says this in both the book and in the movie. In the movie, it's a little harder to trust those words because he fell victim to the ring pretty quickly when he's found out that that's what Frodo had around his neck. In the book, he never does. And so we can take those words much more seriously than we can in the movie. Because in the book, Faramir is a very different character. He is very much more Gandalfian. He, he is a wizard's pupil, as Denethor will mockingly call him. Not in the sense that he's training up to be a wizard, obviously, but in the sense that he has learned a lot from Gandalf in terms of how you should behave and moral character and all that stuff. He has paid attention to the good things that Gandalf had to teach him, whether it was explicit instruction or not. Whereas Boromir is much more proud and haughty and much more like his father, even if he's also unlike him in a lot of ways. And so Boromir has a much stronger tendency to fall victim to the ring because he is a much more practical-minded man and a much more... He's much more interested in getting the job done with the tools he has rather than doing the right thing whatever the cost, which is more Faramir's approach. And so Faramir has little for the ring to grab onto. Now, if the ring were in his possession for a year and a day or however long, it would start to, you know, make cracks in his mind, right? I mean, it's going to do that eventually. It's just going to find a way to do it just because it's an overpowering malevolent presence, but it's not going to do it because he starts with an inherent desire to do something that he shouldn't do. That's not really what's going on there. And I'm not trying to say by this either that Tolkien is denying in some sense the idea of original sin. He was a Catholic. This is part of his worldview, right? And by his own 
kind of his only explanation of his own world is that it is fundamentally religious and even Catholic, and therefore we have to assume that mortals in this world are also subject to original sin. Maybe not the elves, because by his own writings he will say, you know, that they had kind of a fall, but they're not really all fallen as a race in the way that man is, and therefore do they have an original sin type of thing? It's not really clear. But even they are in some way corruptible because there is a Morgoth element in everything that is built from Arda, and their bodies are a part of Arda. So even the elves are going to have something for the ring to grab onto in some way. So I'm not trying to say that Faramir is immune in the sense that he has no original sin and therefore no proclivity to do anything wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Faramir's desire to use the ring is not going to be there because of some innate desire to do the wrong thing for the right reason or the right thing for the wrong reason. Boromir's tendency to want to use the ring is because he had the wrong set of priorities in the first place. Frodo has the right set of priorities. Faramir has the right set of priorities. He may have a tendency to want to do bad things in moments of weakness like we all do, and I think one example of this is when he kind of snaps at Denethor at one point and he's like, well, you know, you could have listened to me and not sent Boromir. I mean, that's kind of like, there's some truth in that, but it's also maybe a little overstepping the bounds, both as the inferior in terms of the familial relationship and in terms of, like, the hierarchy of the ruling structure of Gondor. He doesn't have any business talking to his father that way, even if it's true. So... Like, this is a moment of weakness for Faramir. He also has a bit of a daddy complex. He wants to get his father's approval, even though it may not be worth getting, you know, as we all know. But he he really does want it. And so there are flaws in Faramir, certainly. I'm not saying he's flawless. But he doesn't have anything that the ring can just immediately grab. Whereas Smeagol, there was something there that the ring was just like, gotcha. I've hooked you already, and he commits murder within minutes of seeing it. That doesn't happen with Frodo and Gandalf and you know all these people who see or at least are in close proximity to the ring for a long time. Boromir himself was in close proximity, even if he didn't see it. I mean, he sees it at the Council of Elrond, but he doesn't see it again for some time, as far as we can tell. But even though he's in close proximity to it, he doesn't outright murder Frodo at the first opportunity he gets, right? And this is another key element of this. Different people, even if they have something for the ring to grab onto, are of different levels of moral character. Smeagol was already so far gone that he commits murder almost immediately after he runs across the thing. Boromir probably would have committed murder against Frodo if he had had really no other way of obtaining the ring in that moment, but it took him a long time to get there, right? He had to build that up in his mind. The ring had to work on him for a while, and he had to reach that point. Smeagol was already there. Frodo takes much, much longer to get there because he's already in a much better frame of mind than Boromir ever is. And so you can see where this explanation of the ring having both a Manichaean and a non-Manichaean kind of mode of operation, as it were, 
helps explain why these different people react so differently to the ring. Yes, everybody's going to fall subject to that corruption at some point if they possess it long enough. Bombadil won't because he'll chuck it before (laughs) he gets the opportunity. Uh, But that's a totally different story. But everybody else is eventually going to be corrupted because the ring is that powerful and that malevolent. But everybody's different in terms of how fast they get there based on how bad they already are. If Denethor had been in the company, I mean, he's a much older man, he might have a little bit harder time keeping up with the rest of them, but if he had been in the Fellowship, he probably would have gone for the ring a lot faster than Boromir did, because Boromir, for all his faults, is not as bad as his very proud and very arrogant father. Boromir is proud, but he is not as he's not as far gone as Denethor is. Similarly, if Théoden had been in the Fellowship, he probably would have never gone there, like Boromir did. Like, and this is you know the Denethor Théoden contrast is always a fun one in a lot of different ways. This is a completely wild hypothetical for either of them, and, and I mean you have to ignore the fact that he was corrupted by Grima and all that stuff too. But you know, aside from that, you know, assuming we get Théoden as restored, right? So. This whole idea of the ring both being an outside force pushing in, but also pulling out what's already in you to, you know, start down that road. This is why not everybody reacts to the ring the same way. And this is where a really important factor in the story Tolkien is trying to tell. He's trying to tell us, yes, everybody is corruptible. Frodo himself fails at the end. Sam is even corruptible. You know, he doesn't ever become corrupted by the ring, but he's, you know, it would have happened. And we see that it would have happened because the short period of time he has it, in the confines of Mordor, he already starts having delusions of grandeur. And if it wasn't for the love of Frodo and his plain hobbit sense, he would have gone down the wrong road pretty fast. It takes a lot of willpower. And luckily for Sam, even though he hadn't had a lot of time to build up that willpower, he at least had enough sense and love for his master that it, you know, he managed to hold it off. But a lot of people wouldn't have been able to do that. And the point is, Sam very well could have been corrupted. I mean, it just just would have taken a certain amount of time and he eventually would have got there. Frodo is more corrupted than Sam by the end because he's carrying it longer. And he's been through a lot more than Sam, too. I mean, he's been stung by a spider, stung by a... I mean, stabbed by a ring wraith. I mean, dude went through a lot. And then, at the end of the day, what we get here is everybody is going to be corrupted. And the question is, how quickly are they going to be corrupted? Are you more like a Faramir? Or are you more like a Smeagol? Are you more like a Boromir? Somewhere in the middle right? There's a whole wide range of stuff here, and this is one of the reasons why I like Faramir's character in the books. It's like, Aragorn is not the only human in the world that can withstand the temptation of the ring, right? Faramir has already decided, I'm not taking it, and so that level of willpower is what helps him, you know, say, nope, I'm not going there. And the same with Gandalf. Gandalf himself recognizes If you gave it to me to keep, I would eventually use it out of pity, and then it would just be downhill. But that's why I'm saying no up front. Faramir takes the Gandalfian track of, 
I'm not even going to put myself in the position because I know what will happen if I do. And that's the smart choice. There's another lesson here, too, about don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted to do something that you shouldn't do because if you put yourself in the situation where you're going to be tempted, you're going to get tempted. And more than likely, you're going to fail at the test. That's just not a smart way to play things. It's better to not even let yourself go there than to say, well, I can take it. I can just resist. Nobody can resist something that is tempting forever. It just, that's not how we're built. So this look at the ring, I think, is really important for a number of reasons. But the main reason, like I say, I wanted to talk about it is because it does highlight why Faramir is such a unique character, but also it shows why, you know, this change, even though a lot of people think it makes more sense in the movies, because it's like, well, how do you explain how, you know, the ring affects some people but not others? This is how the explanation works. Tom Shippey has a great way of explaining exactly how it works, and it's I don't think it's that complicated. I think you could have done this in the movies without really making it any more complicated or, you know, screwing up people's expectations of what they're going to get when the ring comes in contact with other people. Now, you might have had to, like, take back Galadriel's line at the very prologue about men desiring power above all else because that does set you up for certain expectations. But, you know, aside from that, like, just telling the story itself, I think this would have worked. I think you wouldn't have had to change that to make it understandable and relatable to everybody watching the movie. I don't think that was necessary. So anyway, that's my exploration of the nature of how the ring works and it's evil. I hope you found this illuminating. If you're interested in more stuff like this, Tom Shippey's books, both of them, author of the century and the road to middle earth both great books he goes over so much interesting stuff in there uh highly recommend both i think i did book reviews on both of them at one point i might have only done one of them i forget uh but look them up in my playlist i know i've done at least one if you want to catch more of my content of course please do subscribe like and share this video around if you found it useful you can check the description for my social and platform links. Don't forget my Discord channel. And don't forget to follow me on the platform formerly known as Twitter for Tolkien-related trivia questions. Until the next time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Elf friends Paul Leone and Nathan Dufour.